Welcome to The Philip Show. If you haven't already, go ahead and grab your coffee. I want to know what you guys are drinking out there in, in Philip Show land. Mm. Oh my. So we're getting into, the year has started, and we're getting into, it's almost February, and that's Black History Month. Before we get there, we're coming up on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and the celebrations and all the remembering and all of that i was sitting and thinking it's like what does that mean for us now there's been so much social unrest there have been so many protests there have been so many people that have said there don't need to be protests there are many people that are saying racism still exists there's some people that say it doesn't people i've had guests on the show that said they've received treatment because poor treatment at hospitals because they were minorities. Then some people tried to dispel that and say that was just a myth. What do we think? Where are we? What's going on on the ground when it comes to care and when it comes to this trauma that it seems like uh, a lot of people are feeling? And what do we do next? Well, let me tell you what I did next. I called my brother. So I called uh, Dr. Big Bro. His name is Dr. Jason O'Rourke. D men. Now listen, I didn't call him just because he's my brother because he's brilliant, number one, but he's also the director of hospital mission integration and spiritual care. He is the chair of the diversity council. He is the chair of the ethics committee and he is the chair of community engagement. So I'm not calling him because of nepotism. I'm calling him because he's that dude, Jason. <laughs> I would have you know that I am drinking um, uh, black vanilla it. chai tea. Black, black vanilla chai with coconut creamer. Is the black for uh, Martin Luther King Day? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So um, I'm so super excited that you're on here. And I really, you know, I really want to have a cool conversation, but a very directed one, you know, and I think it's a safe space. You're my bro. We can just talk about stuff. And you deal with this every single day. So I just want to throw some questions out there and let's have a chat. Um, we're coming up on Martin Luther King Jr. Day as I open the show. You deal with a lot of diverse people looking out into the nation. Let's just start from there. Why do you think that there's still so much confusion about if racism exists, racism exists or doesn't? So, okay. Thank you for the question. I don't think that there's confusion. Okay. I think that there is, um, I think that there's just tacit denial because mm -hmm. that's more convenient. Um, we like, so let me, let me answer the question this way. Okay. Yeah. Let me yeah. answer the question this way. Um, because I, I wanted to make sure that I opened up some things. Um, and I, I it's somewhere around here. I'm not gonna try and look for it now, but there are different degrees of trauma. Okay. There are varying degrees of trauma. And when you have varying degrees of trauma, you have, so you have personal and acute trauma. You can have chronic trauma, right? That happens over a period of time. Then you get into what is called um, historic and systemic trauma. When you start dealing with things like that, you're looking at systemic um, issues that system-wide and historic. So a good illustration of historic trauma would be 
um, uh, Jewish people and the historic trauma that they still remember and the world is not allowed to forget the Holocaust. Okay. And rightfully so, and rightfully so. Um, in America, um, the, the, the prevailing cultural thing has been the tension between who we claim we are and who, what we know we've done. And so as one writer said, they said, um, he said, the Negro question is much deeper than the slavery question. And what that means is that slavery is about behaviors. Racism is about states of being and thoughts. And I think that our nation has not really dealt with the reality that, that we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to grip the fact that we are birthed and grounded, founded on the idea of racial superiority and racial inferiority. It is the bedrock of what we do. And so I don't think we're comfortable with that because it goes against the ideals we were taught that we are. So, so let me I think ask, we can move with that. So let me ask you, because you said, um, you said something about like deal with it. So that's an actionable word. We, are, we aren't comfortable in dealing with it. And I know for a lot of people who kind of push back on, well, so that was then, this is now. I think there might be a disconnect be, with the word, not because you said it, but because it's actionable and people don't see where their action comes in. What do you mean by deal with it? We don't right. deal so, with it. What's that well, mean? 100%. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, so let me take the issue of, I'll use two, anecdotes, okay? Anecdotes. Um, I am a heterosexual male Christian American, okay? So there are two groups of people that I do not directly relate to and that I cannot directly empathize with off the top, right? So for me to deal with the fact that I'm a male in a man's world and know that women make what, 80% to my dollar? I have to be willing to hear well, this. Listen, listen, let these people tell it allegedly. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So, but again, we, we, can, we can say that, but the numbers don't stack up to allegations. The numbers stack up to the fact that women make less than men. So I have to be willing to hear that. I've got to be willing to hear their story about being objectified as a sexual object everywhere they go, even though that may not be my experience. I've got to deal with the fact that when I walk into a room anywhere on the globe, as a man, my voice carries more weight than my wife's. Mm -hmm. I, have to, I have to wrestle with that and accept that I have that place in society and then, then sometimes give my seat up to Melissa. Melissa, please, please talk to these people. And you understand? I like, I have to do that because the, the, the system is crafted for the male voice. If I were to turn the tables, and I look at my brothers and sisters on the LGBTQIA side of, of everything, okay? They're in a heterosexual world. I'm a heterosexual male. Historically, law and policy favors me by default. I don't have to know what they go through. I don't have to consider their healthcare disparities. I don't have to consider their feelings, none of that. But they experience mm. being marginalized for X amount of years, millennia, for millennia. If I have, I have to deal with the fact that I sit in a place where I, in those two cases, am the norm. People have to accept the fact that they sit in the place of what is normal. They sit in the place of what is normal. The problem with diversity, and this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a linguistic etymological fact. Okay, diversity comes from the word divergent. 
But the word divergent literally means there is one thing that is normal and everything that is not normal diverges Got from it. the norm. So inclusion means you're not normal, but we'll include you. Hmm. And that's the problem with it because it still allows the norm to be the norm. So instead of multiplicity or variety, it means this is still the norm, but we have a responsibility to include you. And the sad thing is that may be all that society has to offer. We may not be a people capable of accepting that there are multiplicities of equally valuable people and that normal is a misnomer. Mm. You see what I'm saying? My yeah. norm may not be somebody else's normal experience. And so how do we accommodate with compassion and respect the varieties of human experience so that everybody gets a seat at the table of equity as we move toward justice. We're not having that the nation does not want that conversation. They want there to be a norm, you see. And so uh, an individual's value is, is contingent upon how close to normal they are. Mm. Yeah. And then therefore an individual's access to justice, to equity, to resources is contingent upon their alignment with the norm. Mm, yeah. Coming up on um, Martin Luther King's birthday, you know, that's been embraced. It, it's, a, it's a pretty big, um, it's different now than it was back in the day. I think the things that are celebrated as um, almost African-American celebrations and we're, we've come so far that sometimes people see it as no longer relevant. Martin Luther King was talking about, you know, I had a dream that one day men will be, uh, you know, judged by the content of their character. And where are we? You know, like where where are we? Right. I think that I think I think we stopped at King's vision, and mm. we stopped at his dream. So we the whole nation stopped at 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 DC. Now let's but let's remember. While he was alive, he was the most hated man in America. Let's be very clear. He was the most hated man in America. They hated him. They hated him more than they hated Malcolm X. Who hated him? And why is that such an unknown? Okay, so who hated him? Um, the government hated him. Um, I would say the large swath of conservative, racist white America hated him. And by the time he was, but before he died, um, he, he did a, a message in Tennessee. I think it was in Memphis. I believe it was Memphis at the garbage. He was dealing with garbage men. Um, and he was doing that. He was preparing for a poor people's march on DC. But before he went to Tennessee, he did a, one last presentation to my knowledge at the um, American Cathedral in, D, in, in DC. He did a presentation, a sermon. And it was one of three sermons. It was a sermon that he had done at least three different times. But what you notice every time he used it, it changed so that by the time he used it in 65 was it 65 is it 65 wait a minute by the time he used it in 68 excuse me by the time he used it in 68 in dc he was no longer he no longer had an optimistic view of even liberals he didn't have an optimistic view of liberals which had been people that had been supporting him up to that point he didn't even have an optimistic view of them but America memorialized him as a symbol of the idealism that we present, but they didn't want to hear the realism that he taught. He actually is noted that he's actually noted on a speech as saying, listen, 
How is it they're telling us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but they are paying farmers in the West and the Midwest to not farm after they gave them land grants and land grant colleges and trained them and gave them all their equipment. They're paying them to not farm, but we have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. He said, we're going to get our check. That is not a conversation. So this is what America has done as an institution, as a large society, and it makes everybody feel good. You have, anytime you have, a, in this case particularly, a significant movement of people that actually want to right an inequitable system, the leader dies, they make a celebration, they give a holiday, it's an event, we remember, and everybody yeah. feels they've done their good job. It's like thoughts and prayers after every, after every, after every shooting. Yeah. Doesn't do anything. You're not handling gun policy. You see, you're not dealing with gun policy. If every mass shooter has mental health issues, why is there not a mental health criterion for buying a gun? If that's the, if that's the, the, the line that gets trotted out after every mass shooting, why isn't that policy done? But they but thoughts right. and prayers. They do that with every, they do that with all the stuff they don't, the system. The system does it with all things that it does not want to change. It creates a holiday, thoughts and prayers, and now we're now there we go. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of all of the um, I'm thinking of all the the kind of face value or lip services, you know, that people can do that sounds good, you know, but if we look at it, it's kind of like, well, you really didn't mean that because if you did, then this would change. If you meant that, then this. What do we as um as African Americans, you deal in trauma, and I think there for me sometimes I um, I overlook our experience because I live it every single day, you know. Right. So for for what you see when it comes to the social social aspect of racial issues, what is how does trauma um, how does trauma show up, or how have you seen it? show up when it comes to racial interactions so so let me let me read i want to read from one of my professors when i did my doctorate um he did he this is his book um his name is nicholas greer it's called care for the mental and spiritual health of black men he documents from another uh scholar uh three movements that really kind of undercut every um black liberation movement the first one is racial sacrificial covenants in order for there to be any progress, the first thing they ask is for one group of people to sacrifice themselves. Okay. Period. Your interests are sacrificed for the greater good, right? For the greater good, right? Then, if our interests are considered, it is called entrance convergence covenants. Where is it most beneficial for you to help me out? Hmm. Right? So we we either are called to sacrifice our interests or we've got to make sure that our interests are your interests. Mm-hmm. Or here's the other one. Um, they call it um, ratio fortuity, or it's fortuitous or lucky. The idea here is you're the lucky third party of two other parties that are making an agreement with themselves and you benefit from their agreement. Hmm. So it's never really best for you on your terms. It's either you sacrifice or it's what's best for us and you benefit in the aftermath. So what does that look like? What does that what does that trauma look like? It looks like a distrust of healthcare. 
Mm. It looks like a distrust of healthcare. It looks like um, it looks like a distrust of cops. It looks like um, um, a giving up to the system. It's like I'll never get out of here. Mm. It's it's a giving up, a just a despair. It looks like it can it can demonstrate itself in significant um, violent outbursts. Because you know there's an injustice, but the but the but the but the but the thing you need to fight, you know you can't win. So okay. here's a here let me just let me just anecdotally do some history, right? So when you go to Europe, you do not see large flat cities. In fact, the only city that I saw that was large and fat flat in grid style, the way America does it, is Frankfurt. And that's because it got bombed to smithereens during World War II. Everything else is very circular and winding. France, Italy, they follow the contours of the nation, of, of, of the geography, okay? You go, you go to the mountain cities of, uh, of the Appalachians, same thing. That's where the, you know, the pilgrims, all these people, that's where the America first, Appalachians and East. You go to those cities, very contourish, right? You go to, you, you know, very strange streets. Nothing is grid-like. Where'd we get grids from? We got grids because after uh, slavery, black people moved north and moved into the cities. And then everybody else moved out. And so did business. Right. So business moves out and and schools, school values dropped because school values are based on land tax. Mm. If the businesses move and everybody else that is that is middle class moves, the value of the land drops. You don't have good schools. Are you going to blame sure. that on the people that moved in? No. America never had suburbs until people started running away. What were they running away from? Black people. Right? So now you're in an environment. Baltimore's a classic illustration. The middle class moved out. The middle class moved flat out into the suburbs. The businesses left. The schools plummeted. And the inner city became over-policed. Why? That's where all the poor black and brown people are. And so what does it look like? See, this is the this is the challenge that America is not comfortable saying when you, when it comes to 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 the lower economic class that is placed literally in in interesting scenarios, right? It is it is it is literally the lesser of two evils. Nothing is ever black and white for the lower the middle lower economic class. People can have conversations about investment, but the lower economic class is trying to eat tomorrow. They're right. trying to pay the bills. It's not the same, right? So you end up in a, with a survivalist mentality. You, there's no way to envision anything else. And this is why you have so many urban young people, so many urban young people that are very committed to their sports because it's the one way they see that they can get out. Mm. The one way. And, and the whole family is riding on them. And people don't understand. So LeBron James, I'm just using him as an illustration. LeBron James, phenomenal young man, came in right after high school, and he has changed the lives of everybody in Akron. He sent thousands of kids through college. And even him, with all of his, with everything he's done for his people, Ram, you understand, for, for, for the community, when he made a statement about injustice and that we need to address these things, Little Miss Blondie had the nerve just to tell him to shut up and dribble. Mm. Yeah. Man is a billionaire. Has committed himself uh, to his community to uplift yeah. it because yeah. that's the argument they always say. Why aren't you fixing your community? He is. And yet for everything he's done for his community, he still doesn't get a right to critique. Yeah. All of Fox News with him, shut up and dribble. Conservatives, shut up and dribble. 
You see, it looks it looks like it looks like it looks like a, 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 a it looks like a massive. This is fascinating. A massive global protest. That's what it looks like. A massive a trauma response. Right. A, a, a revolutionary response could be a massive global protest that took place to the death of one man. Mm. Global. Now, that's a massive statement. Yeah, that we didn't listen to because right after that, what happens? What happens in the last three years? There's a massive move to to ban books in schools. Why? They'll say they'll say it's because schools are teaching um, LGBTQIA, teaching kids to be LGBTQIA. That's 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 no, that's not what it is. It's because they were teaching the other side of American history and people don't want to have that conversation, particularly conservatives. As um, somebody who may be conservative um, and who may be white, is there any trauma that, because a lot of times people feel like they're being attacked. People feel like it's not my fault and now I'm being um, targeted. These are, these are white people. Great but question. I mean, is, is okay. So it's what do you question. Mean? It's a great question. So it, is it traumatic? So let's be very clear. So first of all, beloved saints of God, you know, people living in the universe, you understand what I'm saying. Um, I'm not upset. I'm animated. And I'm prior military. But I'm not mad. Just clarification. And now, just in case anybody, just for everybody who knows me, this is my brother. <laughs> You're welcome. <Go> ahead. <laughs> no, but it, we have to understand. No, we don't have to understand. It just has to. The other side of the coin is that America has done a really great job of indoctrinating, and I mean as a system, indoctrinating everyone into believing into the nobility of everybody, okay? So here's a perfect illustration. Um, we named American military forts after Confederate generals. For people who are gonna have a hard time understanding why that's significant, why is that odd? Right, because because um, there is no city named after Hitler. Insurrectionists, genocidal maniacs, no, there is no city named after them. There's no city, right? So what the, what America did in doing things like that, naming streets and schools and, and 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 statues and things, when they allowed this to take place, they literally said, they literally went ahead and said, that the ad, what these people were advocating for was not that bad. And we went to war. We went to war really over nothing. Mm. That's, we went to war. We, we were fighting. You understand? It's not that there was a moral dysfunction in the nation. Sure. And so we went. And so, you know, it's a blip in, in the books. We fought a war. We freed the slaves and America. Right. That's kind of how people are taught, right? And then all of a sudden we start saying, yeah, but let's 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 go back and consider what happened, who did it, who made money. Let's talk about grandma and grandpa for a minute. There's a city right now in Mississippi or Alabama, one of the two, um, and I don't remember the name, but it's it's a, it's it's called I believe it's called Africa Town, um, and it's. It's surrounded by industrial everything, okay? And they there, 
right there. They are those those are the descendants of the last the Clotilda, the last slave ship to come into America. It was done by a private family. They snuck them in, snuck them up the river and the boat sunk and nobody's been able to find it forever. They found it in the last five years. They know it exists. So the people's narrative is true. And for years, the family descendants of the of the man that brought those slaves in didn't want to speak about it. Because there's two questions. One, I come from that. Does that make me that? Two, I think that's a huge question. It's a massive question. It's an existential question, Mm -hmm. right? And two, here's the convenience question. All of our wealth is based off of that. What do we do now? Those are the two questions. And that, yeah, and that I think is the crossroads um, because I haven't, I think that's where we are today. You know, I think that's where we are today. And I think that that's where people have a hard time connecting and have a hard time disassociating because that is me, that was me, you're saying that's me, but that's not me. And okay, so even if, what do you want? You know, and I think that that's sometimes where people start, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is where the reparations part comes in. These are, these are all the remedies. When you said, you know, what do we do now? I feel like, because we're here talking, I feel everything to me, this, this Martin Luther King day, it's like, okay, great, great, great. Where are we and where do we go? You know, like, I don't, where do we so, go from here? Right. So there are two, I think that's two questions for me. For me, that's two questions. Mm-hmm. Because, and I, and I say that, so on one hand, Webb Du Bois says, and I, I closed the book, but I can't, but he's, he's, noted, he's quoted as saying, there's an interesting question between me and the world. Before you and keep going. Before you keep going, when you say Webb Du Bois, you're talking about W.E. Du Bois? Yes. E. Sorry. My bad. W.E.B. Yes. W. E. E. Du Bois. Okay. He's quoted as saying this. There's an interesting question between me and the world. What does it feel like to be a problem? Mm. Now, that that that's a significant question. It is. And I wouldn't know because I'm never the problem. Uh, yes. I, I, never. Ever. Never. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. But then there's the next. And so with that, there's the next question, the next statement by 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 King. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And we are caught in attention. We are caught in attention because as a nation. Can we as a nation, as a, as an organized body and society. Can we appreciate the variety of experiences and stories that we have that make us a nation. Can we appreciate that we as a nation have a responsibility to craft the future, not fix the past? And that's two different things. We look in the past because we see what's going on. The past may not be able to be fixed, But how do we craft, what future are we crafting for our children is the question. It is better to be a good ancestor than a loyal descendant. How will this generation, the generation that is, that is, that is now, 
What decisions will we make? What people will we be moving forward to create for my daughters, your nieces, right? Any of, what are we creating for them? Are we creating a sectarian, um, a continued divided nation that objectifies individual and tries to reduce them down to the lowest common denominators that we can control them? And I'd mean that for all people. Or are we willing to embrace the fact that every single person is a mystery to be learned and to be revealed and to be valued? And if valued, how do we create an environment that supports all, supports everybody? The civil rights movement was dying until those four little girls got blown up in that church. Don't